Hello and welcome to the Allen & Irvy podcast. I'm Kamar Jaffer, counsel in the Allen & Irvy Funds and Asset Management team. Today we'll be focusing on the role of private equity in emerging markets. This is a timely topic because we expect growth to be driven by those markets. We'll look at what lessons can we learn from COVID-19, what impact has it had on fundraising, and what changes have there been in the approach to managing portfolio companies. This is part of a series of conversations recorded with senior industry players to spotlight opportunities beyond COVID-19. This podcast will be of interest to sovereign wealth funds, institutional investors, private equity firms, and portfolio companies with a focus on those that are operating in emerging markets. I'm joined today virtually by V. Shankar, co-founder and CEO of Gateway Partners, and Huda Lawati, partner at Gateway Partners. Gateway is an emerging markets alternative investment manager. And prior to Gateway, Shankar was CEO for Europe, Middle East, Africa and Americas of Standard Chartered, and Huda was CIO at Savola Group, an investment holding company in MENA. And from the ANO team, I'm joined by my corporate partner, David Foster, who specializes in cross-border M&A transactions and has been based in the region since 2008. Shankar, if I can turn to you first, please, to kick off. You cover a very broad geography from Africa to Asia. Do you think that this crisis will lead to more investment opportunities in emerging markets? First of all, thank you, Kamar and Alan and Overy for having my colleague Uda and myself on this podcast. It's an honor and a delight to be with all of you. The answer to your question, Kamar, is yes. We see terrific investment opportunities in emerging markets as a result of what's happening in the world today. Why do I say that? Fundamentally, uh, the long-term trends are in favor of emerging markets, particularly Africa, Middle East, and Asia, for four reasons. One, they have a young, growing population, two-thirds of the population under the age of 35. In the case of Africa, almost three-quarters of the population is under the age of 35. They're also rapidly urbanizing. Over a billion people will become urban dwellers over the next 10 to 15 years just across these geographies. There's a rising degree of affluence and consumption across these markets. And this should lead to a explosion in demand for basic goods and services. We are talking about basic goods like food, shelter, clothing. We are talking about basic services like education, healthcare, access to broadband and data. I see terrific opportunities. Also, if you look at emerging markets in the whole, their relevance and attractiveness has only increased in a world where the interest rates are zero or even negative. People need yield. Also, investors are appreciating the importance of diversification, not just in terms of asset class, but also in terms of geography and sector. And finally, where are you going to get growth? All the growth, irrespective of whichever economic study you look at, is going to happen across emerging markets. For all those reasons, I believe that the investment opportunities across emerging markets will be attractive, will increase. And if you look at the lessons of the global financial crisis or the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, what you would see is that some of the best deals happened soon after the crisis 
the ability to buy into great companies at attractive prices, which could lead to outstanding returns. That time is back now with us. Thank you, Shankar, for highlighting the factors underpinning the increased attractiveness of emerging markets, particularly post-crisis. What are your perspectives, David, on this? I agree with Shankar's observations. I think there will undoubtedly be investment opportunities, continue to be, I should say, investment opportunities in emerging markets for all the reasons that, that Shankar mentioned. I do expect investors to become more innovative with the structuring of their investments and start looking to instruments other than just plain vanilla equity, including structured equity and convertible debt. Credit, in the form of lending at least, has traditionally been provided in emerging markets almost exclusively by banks. We've not to date seen the explosion of alternative credit providers, which are now such an important part of markets in the US and Europe. And given the need for liquidity and the question mark regarding how much of this will be provided by banks, I do think there's an opportunity for private equity and other market participants to fill that gap. Thanks, David. Now that we have that context in terms of opportunities across emerging markets, Huda, what are some of the lessons that have been learned from COVID-19? Do you see any changes in the approach, structuring, valuation and management of portfolio companies? Yes, I think the main lesson is that it pays off to diversify and it pays off to manage for the downside as much as you do for the growth plan of companies and it definitely is important not to overpay, which is an obvious thing to say, but it still happens quite often. Our approach has always been to find the best relative value across our broad markets and across several sectors to diversify and to, uh, wherever we can, solve for the downside that may occur during the life of an investment. To David's point, structuring instruments, using convertibles, using other instruments, we're able to address some of that downside, such as accepting, putting in convertibles, which convert into equity based on valuations that take away the risk for future earnings to some extent and factor in ratchets. We also structure our investments in dollars where the counterparty or the target can support that kind of instrument. And that allows us to take away the currency risk to some extent. Where possible, we will agree uh, IRR floors with counterparties in return for giving up some upside, which we think is a good risk return balance that we can achieve in some of our investments. And the structuring also allows us to look at distributions in the form of coupons and the like, or even taking dividends and straight equity to de-risk along the life cycle of the investment. I think LPs will be forgiving of bets that people took on otherwise healthy sectors, travel or whatever it is, but they will not be forgiving of managers overpaying for assets, over leveraging their portfolios or concentrating too much in one sector or one market. Thank you, Huda. David, to draw you into this, what are you seeing from your side in terms of approach? Well, as you might expect, we're seeing an increased focus on due diligence at the minute. DD processes are diving much deeper 
to seek to understand the direct and the indirect implications of COVID on a target business and its suppliers and customers, including the financial stability of its key counterparties. And in some sectors, buyers are having to evaluate potentially quite profound structural changes to the industries in which companies operate. Business continuity plans and risk management frameworks are becoming key items of focus like never before. And buyers are asking themselves whether these plans, the people managing them, and the various contingency scenarios are adequate. The final point I'd make on the topic of due diligence, which is high on the agenda for investors in emerging markets at the minute, is corporate governance. And and not just on paper, but how this actually works in practice, including the structural systems and procedures in place to ensure proper governance and risk management. That was an increased area of focus in emerging markets prior to COVID, and I would expect that trend to continue. And what about deal terms? On deal terms, we're seeing an increased focus on on three topics, which I would expect to continue for at least the next 12 months. The first is around pricing structures. Clearly, valuation is a challenge at the minute, and the challenge that buyers and sellers have on agreeing valuations are leading to an increased use of deferred consideration and earnouts to bridge valuation gaps. There's also a shift away from lockbox pricing structures to completion accounts pricing structures. The second topic is payment security, which is a much bigger issue than usual on both buy side and sell side. And parties are typically looking to manage this risk through greater use of letters of credit, deposits, rate fees, escrow accounts, warranty and indemnity insurance, and in some cases security to try to protect themselves against a payment default by the buyer or the seller. The final topic is conditionality and execution risk. And while this has always been an important point for sellers, they have a laser-like focus on this at the minute. And this carries through to all CPs and termination rights in an SPA, but particularly to material adverse change clauses. And whilst MACs are difficult to invoke in practice, we're seeing lengthy discussions at present regarding how to apportion risk on this between buyers and sellers. Thanks, David. Picking up on the fact that COVID-19 will transform certain industries, Shankar, sector-wise, is your investment strategy going to be changed or refined? Will you focus on any specific industries? Change, no. Refined, yes. We remain, Kamar, true believers in the consumption story across emerging markets. We also remain firm believers in the growth potential of Africa, Middle East, South and Southeast Asia. Of course, our strategy will be informed by changes. And the real question is, are some of these changes going to be permanent or temporary? But standing where we are today, some of the trends early, of course, is will people travel less? Will people go to restaurants less? Will people use hotels less as a result of that? Will office spaces become less of a need? Will central business districts become zombie towns? We don't know. These are some of the things you need to keep track of. That's on the dialing downside. But on the dialing upside, the crisis 
has shone the light on potentially some megatrends. Will countries focus more on supply chain diversification and more on onshoring? Will companies look again at supply chain diversification? And sometimes it may lead to more concentration rather than relying on supplies from a distant China. You may look at manufacturing at home or in a neighboring country. Digitization and automation of processes, focus on health and wellness could be other trends. So yes, dialing up some, dialing down some, but fundamentally, we believe the consumption story is intact, the growth story is intact, and we will continue to focus on consumption-driven sectors. Just to illuminate that with some examples over the last two or three months during the COVID, some of our investments, we have an investment in a company in Indonesia, which is the largest water treatment company. Their sales is up. If you look at the optical fiber network, Liquid Telecom in Africa, again, because of more use of broadband, like our conversation today, whether it's a podcast or a video cast, uses more optic fiber networks. So that's great for the business of people like Liquid or Zoom for that matter. And then even a basic company like producer of biscuits like Mrs. Vectors in India, again, safe stuff which comes pre-packaged that can eat anywhere is seeing increased demand. So refined strategy, but not entirely changed. Thank you, Shankar. So picking up on the point about mega trends, Huda, you wrote an interesting article on supply chain disruptions. So production and manufacturing is moving closer to home, and there's now a greater focus on food security. There's also deglobalization. How do you see private equity playing into those trends? Either it's companies looking to diversify their supply chains or shorten them because of the disruption that they witnessed, it will necessitate creation of capacity, either within the supply chain itself or production manufacturing capacity, which requires capital. And of course, that's where private equity comes in. In addition, private equity is a great conduit for governments looking to create security for essential products, be it food, pharmaceutical, medical supplies, because It's difficult for governments to do this on their own. Private equity is able to either through PPPs or just by taking advantage of encouraging policies from government to set up or fund the setup of manufacturing for these essential goods within certain countries and markets. Food in particular, and if you take the GCC, for example, there has been a lot of focus on it. Uh, through the years, but the difficulty has been in translating the investments that have been made in, say, agricultural land in either Latin America or the subcontinent into actual food security at home. I think you've seen trends in people starting to look at food tech and other uh, vehicles to increase food security, but to be successful in that, you need to actually be able to diligence the technology that can go through VC, for example, you need to be able to get those new innovative products on the shelves and the distribution and selling of that requires the private sector to play a role. To illustrate that, uh, we have in one of our investments in Indonesia, a hospital group where we saw during the crisis, the government partnered with them to refit some of their hospitals to help them address the COVID crisis needs. And I think that is an illustration of the way governments can partner with private equity to address some of these requirements. Thank you, Huda. So shifting gears to uh, fundraising, which is my area, 
I've noticed three trends there. One is that investors are getting to the finishing lines on some of the fundraisers that they started pre-COVID. Two is that investors are also in the market to re-up and reallocate to managers that they know, and they may do so even in, in new strategies. And the third is that investors are looking to distress debt and special situation strategies in these times of upset. Shankar, how do you see fundraising in emerging markets being impacted uh, by COVID-19? Kamar, all the observations you've made are bang on, uh, absolutely correct. Fundraising is going to be tougher, not just for emerging markets, but across the world. But emerging markets are not dead. In fact, the importance of emerging markets is only increased. Where else uh, would you go if you want growth? Where else would you want to go if you want yield? And if diversification is important, there is simply no alternative today to emerging markets. Having said that, allocators of capital will be more discerning, more disciplined, and more differentiating in their approach. And in that context, I think when they look at managers, performance matters. Secondly, risk management as Huda earlier mentioned, will become critical. Not just managers who can deliver returns, but also deliver returns in a balanced risk-reward way. And last but not the least, the quality of the team will become paramount. If I was allocating capital, I look for teams who have lasted and weathered multiple crises, navigated them, not just a, a one-shot crisis. As they say, the rising tide lifts all boats, but when the tide runs out, only then you know who's got the trunks on. Uh, so this is that sort of moment, an inflection point. Buddha, Shankar, and David, many thanks for the time you dedicated to this podcast and the insights you have shared. If I may sum up our discussion with three key takeaways. One is that emerging markets will continue to be one of the key drivers of global growth. Two is that the increasing importance of differentiation between managers based on their experience and track record in successfully navigating economic cycles. And three is that coming out of these unprecedented times, public and private sector collaboration will be even more relevant to ensure sustainable growth. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Yeah.